The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody, and welcome to Sportbox with Karen Cho, Steve Sedgwick, and myself, Jeff Cutmore. Let's get into your headlines this hour. The Dow and the S&P logging their first positive day in six ahead of today's CPI report, which is expected to show that inflation is running hot, potentially putting the Fed in a tough spot in its tapering timetable. U.S. House Democrats return from their August recess with a plan to roll back Trump-era corporate tax cuts as they look to finance the $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill. German real estate company Vinovia drops a key condition in its bid to take over rival Deutsche Wohnen, potentially removing the last hurdle to the deal. Evergrande shares plunge to a six-year low as the Chinese property developer warns of slowing sales and a liquidity crunch, but denies bankruptcy rumours. Plus, you've got OPEC raising its global oil forecast for 2022, saying a post-pandemic rebound in travel will help push demand above pre-pandemic levels. For some parts of the market yesterday after a string of red ink uh, across on the major boards, but the Dow, the S&P flagging up a little bit of green across the course of the trading day. First positive session in six for the Dow. So a decent move to the upside, as you can see, uh, also for the S&P taking part. But the Nasdaq, one of the missing links, and it does tell you about some of the weakness that played out still in the technology names. The Nasdaq uh, pulling back, uh, closing down just a, a fraction. Not a huge swing, but still a negative trade again on the Nasdaq. The fourth straight one that we've witnessed on the index. In terms of the positive catalyst, we saw our energy part of the mix. Uh, those stocks uh, rallying, leading the, the sectors uh, across the course of the trading session. The most negative sector was the healthcare stocks. And uh, we'll get into that in just a minute. But uh, what we saw, that sector pushing lower. The dollar, we are setting up for a big uh, watch around CPI today. The market's closely eyeing this. It is a, a big factor as investors have been closely watching how long the transitory nature of higher prices will be, given the messaging from central banks and also flagging up uh, the taper program for a lot of investors from the Fed now talking about this taper in the markets, wondering when it will get going. But the CPI are quite integral to that. And what we are shaping up for today on the dollar, it looks like this ahead of the, the numbers today. The expectations out there, core consumer prices are expected to rise 0.3% in August. They were up about 0.3% the previous month, but a high level in June of 0.9%. So we're looking at a very steady rate of uh, growth from that July figure. The annual rate that is expected to ease slightly to 4.2% from 4.3% in July. But uh, this could have ramifications for the dollar trade. This morning, dollar is a little bit weaker versus sterling and euro. I want to get into those big moves in the pharma space uh, that to push lower as one of the weakest sectors that we saw across the trade. Uh, effectively, what, there was an article that was published in The Lancet, which is this medical publication, a peer review that questioned the need for further booster shots, uh, given how uh, we are seeing the efficacy across uh, the population 
population with the current vaccines have been administered. The uh, scientific review concluded the general population does not require a booster shot. So this was a reaction across the space of vaccine makers. Moderna suffering the most down 6.6%. And let's get into oil. There's been a lot happening in the last 24 hours. OPEC uh, effectively saying it expects uh, oil demand to cross pre-pandemic levels next year. That's been a big one for markets. <laughs> Directors keeping busy. It's back over on this side. I think this sort of explains what's happening. Investors are running to one side on, on the demand supply story and then they're running back to the other. And uh, what you've got this morning, a bit up in the price around this demand forecast around these pre-pandemic levels being achieved next year. So real recovery in the oil industry has been flagged up, but even short-term pressures as well on the supply side as we've seen this tropical storm Nicholas upgraded to hurricane uh, all as producers and refiners in the Gulf have been trying to get back up to speed after Hurricane Ida. So more pressure on prices. And you can see seven tenths on WTI, six tenths on Brent. A uh, quick look at those big U.S. oil majors. Energy, as I mentioned, was part of the mix yesterday. And here's how it played out. Uh, very strong for Occidental, 6.6% pop. The other major one was Hess Group, more than 5% to the upside. Asia markets, we are seeing a huge focus still around this technology backlash for those Asian markets, if we can show you how they are playing out across the region. Again, we're, we're focusing on electric vehicles, the commentary around whether there needs to be consolidation in the industry. Uh, also commentary from uh, Beijing about technology companies blocking each other's links. Uh, Beijing wants that to stop. And the other big factor too has been Evergrande and liquidity position of the big property developers. So Hong Kong stocks, a little bit in the red still, not too much at this point, only down a tenth of a percent, matched against uh, a little bit of green across the rest of these markets. But I think it's fair to say that uh, for the markets, it's still one around fiscal and monetary stimulus and uh, some expectations around uh, what may be coming from Congress. Steve. Karen, thank you very much indeed for that. Right, US House Democrats have laid out a series of tax hikes as part of their strategy to pay for a $3.5 trillion bill designed to uh, tackle climate change and improve the social safety net. The measures would roll back tax cuts implemented by the previous president, Mr. Trump, raising the rate of corporate tax to 26.5% from 21%. The final price of reconciliation bill uh, could come in lower as negotiations with lawmakers continue. Isn't that ironic, Jeff, that the Americans are trying to put tax up to 26.5% and yet you've got the head of the Eurogroup who doesn't want to up from 12.5%. What a funny old world we live in. Yeah, isn't it funny? Um, inflation in the US is expected to have continued running hot in August, with Reuters forecasting CPI to come in at 5.3% on an annual basis. Core CPI is also set to come in above 4% when the Bureau of Labor Statistics publishes its latest inflation report today at 14.30 CET. The data is set to increase pressure on the Fed to announce a tapering of its bond buying program in next week's meeting, despite ongoing concerns over the labour market. Well, let's bring in Mike Gallagher then, Managing Director of Macro Strategy at Continuum Economics. And Mike, my brain is doing that strange thing where it's connecting songs with stories. And this morning I'm hearing in my head Blue Oyster Cult, uh, the Reaper. Don't fear the Reaper, as in don't fear the taper. Do we need to be concerned about today's inflation print and do we need to worry as investors about the prospect of taper in the fourth quarter? 
Well, Jeff, um, I think the CPI is obviously something that we need to sort of analyse sort of um, closely. But if we sort of look underneath the uh, the bonnet, um, as it were, I think what we'll see in terms of the CPI is that the trend in August is once again slower, like it was in July, and that the Fed's broad narrative that there was a, a bunch of uh, uh, narrow issues, used car prices, airlines, travel, which really boost inflation in the middle of the uh, the summer uh, and early summer, uh, are not necessarily being sort of um, repeated. Um, so that should give the Fed a degree of comfort that they're transitory inflation story will play out and that the headline inflation and core inflation will come down. But, you know, the Fed have actually ticked that uh, that inflation has been met. Um, I think that we're likely to see September, the Fed signaling that uh, we're getting close to tapering. The announcement most probably coming in November um, and starting in uh, December. Uh, because they want um, a little bit more employment uh, data. Just feasible they could delay that decision by a month. But in terms of markets, um, I think you're, you're probably right in terms of um, your, um, your question, you know, in terms of uh, should the market really fear taper? I don't necessarily think that they should because the, the way that the taper has um, an impact is two ways. First, in terms of signalling. But the Fed have actually told us very clearly that uh, taper doesn't mean tightening. And I think that will remain the communication all the way through the next nine months uh, until the summer of next year. Secondly, there's the cash flow effect. So the Fed are buying less bonds. But actually, the US budget deficit is going to come down next year, we estimate, from $3 trillion to about $1.3 trillion. So uh, although the Fed are buying less bonds, the U.S. Treasury's uh, issuance of uh, bonds is slowing more dramatically. Um, so I, I think it's taper in itself is not going to really disturb the markets radically. Mike, uh, we had a very interesting insight, perhaps in today's number from the New York Fed's own inflation report that was released yesterday. Uh, and what I thought it was notable about that was just in the area where expectations of uh, falling prices seem to be uh, predominant. Uh, And let me just have a look at this. Uh, Medium year ahead home price change expectations decreased slightly to 5.9% from 6%. Uh, The one year ahead expected earnings growth fell to 2.5%. And everywhere you looked, effectively, there was a decline in those indicators surrounding perhaps economic momentum. Does that suggest that we've actually topped out in terms of growth this cycle? I think we have already seen peak growth because, um, you know, there was a lot of pent up uh, demand. Um, there was the stimulus checks in the US and Q3 is sort of um, shaping up to be definitely slower than Q2. Um, I, I think the, the trend into 2022 is going to be for uh, for slower growth. And that's probably going to be critical for the U.S. equity market because we're estimating that earnings growth in 2022 will be around 6% um, versus 44% in 2021. Um, And that's really going to be, I think, a little bit of a wake-up call to the the equity market. The equity market's been powered by those earnings numbers um, this year. Uh, And next year is going to be a lot more tricky. Um, You will get a gradual rise in bond yields with tapering. And then as the market looks, we think, towards 
early 2023 tightening, that will continue to ratchet up uh, bond yields. And in that environment, the market's um, really going to, uh, A, uh, find it difficult to move forward, and B, is at increasing risks of a correction. Yeah, talk about this, Craig. Good morning, Mike. Um, in a world where high-yield bonds trade lower than inflation, high-yield bonds, a junk, I should say, sorry, junk bonds trade at a lower yield than inflation. Do we have bubbles everywhere? I don't necessarily know if we have bubbles everywhere. I mean, certainly you're right that in terms of um, high yield, the valuations are um, stretched um, and anomalous. Um, you know, so there, there's certainly a risk that um, high yields um, widen on a spread basis. Traditionally, when Treasury yields go up, they actually narrow. And I think we're not going to see that this time around. Uh, um, I, I think you'd actually need um, a fairly large shock to actually produce um, quite a, a big shakeout in markets. I think it, you are going to see corrective pressures at some stage. Um, but, it, you know, it, it would have to be early Fed tightening, for example, and more aggressive Fed tightening that really sort of uh, prompted not just a correction, but a more sort of substantive um, shakeout in the markets or a hard landing in China. And yet there's a wonderful chart on globaleconomy.com, which is um, an old favourite of yours and Jeff's, I'm sure, M2, money supply. And it's got this column at the end, which shows money supply increase over a 12-month period. Some great numbers in there. Venezuela up 1,430%. Zimbabwe up 404%. We can take those out of the, the mix as well because they're a little bit extreme. But in every single jurisdiction, M2 has gone up by at least double digits. In fact, some areas, as I just mentioned, triple digits as well. The amount of money put into the system to see bubbles only in certain places. I'm surprised that we haven't got bubbles everywhere. We just don't know it, Mike. Is there a concern of yours somewhere that money supply has just gone crazy, obviously in response to the pandemic, and this has led us to have many, many problems that people aren't even thinking about yet. I think the money supply going up was the right response to the uh, the crisis to avoid um, a health crisis becoming a financial sort of um, crisis. Um, if you look at the trend in money supply, it's it has decelerated. Um, not only on a 12-month basis, but also, more, more importantly, on a three-month uh, basis. Um, there's also um, a question of, you know, ultimately, I think if you look across a lot of markets, um, there isn't necessarily misalignment. So um, if you look at a lot of equity markets outside of the, the US, um, they're, they're relatively normally valued on equity valuations, and they're actually cheap versus bonds. The, the, the big misalignment is actually not just, um, as you said, high yield bonds, but government bonds. Government bonds are actually really sort of um, overvalued. Um, but the, the issue is that a lot of central banks, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, are not going to move any time sort of um, soon. And also, even with the Fed, the Fed aren't going to sell down its vast holdings of um, US treasuries, which are going to hit over six trillion. They're probably not going to do that till 2025, maybe even 2027. Um, so there's, a, there's actually um, a fair safety net under government bonds. And that, and that kind of keeps this situation um, existing in, uh, in overall markets. And unless you get something big, as I said, what you could get is intermittent corrections, 
but you don't break the trend. Mike, can I just weigh in around the main alternative downside scenario for markets that you flag up to us? That's the known unknown of uh, whether there could be a mutation that evades COVID-19 vaccines. And the market has had this conversation from early on, and there is still a risk of this happening, which, if it did, would have ramifications for Fed policy as well. I mean, all along in the back of many different crises, we've been talking about a Fed exit and how it manages that exit and how it uh, needs to clearly communicate and it could necessarily do a U-turn. But in this particular case, policy could do a U-turn, right? And we could see some changes on the type of monetary and fiscal policy that's provided to the economy. Well, I mean, we're economists rather than scientists. um, And if we did get sort of a situation where we got a COVID mutation that got around the vaccines, we'd be back to sort of a square one before um, the situation in November. Um, and there we'd be very vulnerable to lockdowns again, uh, economic disruption. And central banks, I think, as you rightly say, would probably have to consider not only pausing uh, normalisation, but actually re-stimulating um, economies once again um you know so we'll, ha- we'll have to to see what what happens i think the good news in some ways is that uh, we we haven't had a major new variant of concern since the delta um, variant um uh, and we'll, we'll we'll have to we'll have to see so it, it's yes it's something that is in going to be in the back of the the market's mind and policymakers mind and does produce a vulnerability. Um, but, you know, we, we, we haven't had a new variant of, uh, of concern arising since really the Delta variant back in March. So it's a good six months that um, we haven't sort of um, seen a game changer. Well, let's hope that is the case. And as we talk about forecasts for 2022, it's quite relevant to think of some of the downside, but also the upside. I was looking at Goldman Sachs uh, level for the S&P 500 earnings in 2022, and they're saying you could see 5% shaved off the market because of a tax rate increase to 25%, uh, plus also half of the proposed hike in the foreign income tax rate. So there is this fiscal side to look at, but also in terms of uh, the market moving from high level on earnings. What are your expectations across 2022 for the S&P? We're looking for uh, the S&P to end 2022 at four and a half thousand. Um, We think it's going to be sort of a tough year. We've certainly factored in something similar in terms of um, the the drag in terms of the financing of the infrastructure uh, package. Um, And that's why we're looking for six percent earnings. And with um, the you know the equity market overvalued, the forward price earnings um, ratio very elevated versus uh, the uh, the kind of the average levels that existed in 16, 2016 to nineteen. We think the market's effectively going to tread water um, over the, the next year, and probably at some stage see sort of a correction. Um, so it's going to be a bumpy ride, and uh, probably um, good to keep a bit of a, a safety belt on. Uh, sometimes um, versus a relatively smooth process over the last 12 months. Uh, Mike, goodbye, farewell. Alfie the same.
Uh, Mike Gallagher, Managing Director of Macro Strategy at Continuum Economics. Uh, as I say, I'm sort of connecting stories and songs this morning. You're just singing through your way through the three hours well, in your we, head. We, well, Steve <laughs> did a good job with it last week, right. so, uh, but I'm not tempted at the moment to break into song. Uh, for more on today's key inflation report, check out CNBC.com, of course. And still to come on the programme, well, this is an interesting story. Venovia has now dropped a key condition in its bid to acquire rival Deutsche Wohnen and says the move should now all but guarantee closing the deal. We'll talk you through that story in just a moment. And to get more analysis on the potential consequences from today's inflation reading, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Apologies, viewers. I've just gone down a rabbit hole because I didn't know much about um, what Tronox is. Do you know much about Tronox? I bet you don't. Uh, shares in UK pigment manufacturer Tronox. Now, Tronox that makes this thing called titanium dioxide pigment, which is used to brighten uh, and add durability to products. Now, paints, varnishes, paper and plastics are 80% of our global consumption of titanium dioxide. There you go. So now I know what Tronox is. Anyway, Tronox shares surged. Uh, on Monday, uh, on the back of reports that private equity giant Apollo has made a $4.3 billion bid for the company. That's according to Reuters, citing people familiar with the matter. Tronox is reportedly considering the offer. They also make Zircon and other products as well. So there you go. I've done my due diligence. Right. This is probably slightly more interesting than titanium dioxide uh, pigments. Property. You're all a little bit obsessed by it. Or is it just me and Jeff and Karen? Uh, German re real estate group uh, Fenovia ha has dropped all closing conditions uh, in its takeover bid for rival Deutsche Wohnen, uh, including a minimum shareholder acceptor threshold. After two aborted attempts, the latest move means that the acquisition can no longer fail, according to the Fenovia boss Rolf Buch. Now, Fenovia said it already owns more than 40% of Deutsche Wohnen shares, adding that if acceptance rates once again fall short of 50%, it will lift its stake via a capital raise or acquiring shares on the market. So we get to chat about property, um, Jeff and Karen as well. Um, look, this is... Obviously, they want the consolidation and they'll give them 550,000 flats, I believe, or something like that. But where it's really interesting is the timing, because in a couple of weeks time, our dear friend, Mr. Cutmore, will be joining our other dear friend, Annette Weisbach, and in Berlin, we'll be analysing the election. This is a red hot potato uh, for the election as well. So very interesting that Rolf Buch wants to get this one done and dusted and present it as a fait accompli, so to speak. Um, I wonder what the French say for fait accompli. Anyway, the point is they want to do this before the election, of course, because Olaf Scholz, amongst others, has said clearly rent caps, rent rises and the unaffordability of affordable housing is somewhere near the top of his agenda as well. And of course, if voters can't afford property, that it becomes a political problem, not just a societal problem as well. So I think the timing is absolutely fascinating, Jeff and Karen. 
Can I just bring up the corporate side too? I think the executive team has tried to consolidate this sector a number of times before and it would be simply embarrassing if they did not get this across the line on the third attempt. So I think uh, they've had a couple of strikes and it might be a third strike and you're out for the, the management, for the board. But uh, if you think about the aggressive measures now, this is quite unprecedented. We've spoken before about much higher acceptance levels, what, 75% in some scheme of arrangements to try and get shareholders across the line. At this stage, they have just over 40%. There's an extra 4% they can soak up, so they're not quite at the 50%. But hey, if they don't get there, they've got other scenarios as well. We're going to underwrite a capital raise, we'll buy stock on the market. They're just going to get to that 50% no matter what. The question is, how do those other shareholders feel that have not agreed so far? Are they just arbitrages? Do they actually want to sell out at some point? They're long-term investors? Or are they passives that can't do anything at this stage and have to wait for completion? But I think it's incredibly aggressive from Venovia and not just the politics down to uh, probably a few careers in-house as well. And just to pick up on your theme, or do they worry about the ability of management at Venovia to execute as a larger business and to extract the synergies that many analysts say don't actually exist in this business? There's not a lot of money that can be squeezed out by bringing together the two operations, given the, given the nature of the business? And secondly, are they concerned that actually creating a bigger target for the politicians won't actually make the environment easier if, in fact, we may have peaked in terms of price rises in the German property market? Because let's understand why this deal is happening. I think we all know that over the last 18 months, maybe even a little longer than that, the key cities in Germany have been red hot in property terms. And we know why that's happened, because of the ECB largesse largely to make money ultimately free, negative even for some borrowers. So ultimately, you've got to find somewhere to park that, which will give you bond-like returns, a good deal of safety in a uh, freehold contract or a property contract in Germany, uh, but ultimately will give you a return or a yield that is above the inflation rate and uh, is above what you could get by parking your cash at the European Central Bank or in a commercial bank savings account. So there's a lot going on in this story. And that would be my question following up on your point. Why are these key shareholders reluctant to vouch their shares at this time? Do they think they can get a higher price? Or are they actually concerned about some of the challenges down the road? And as Steve points out, if the SPD actually win this election and form the next coalition, what further actions are they going to take on rent control and limiting the ability of some large investors to increase their property holdings in cities like Berlin? Yeah, it's already happened in Berlin. We've seen the cap in 2020 as well. Um, look, you, you've just gone right down exactly the same line I was going to go as well. Germans historically rent. We know that. A whole host of European nations historically rent. The British buy and the Americans buy. The Europeans historically rent. But they have been forced out of the rental market in many ways because, as you say, the, the savings, the pensions, the sparkasm, it's been an absolute disaster for those industrious and well-meaning savers in Germany as well. So instead of having rent rises going up aggressively, 
and their savings not covering that as well. Um, a lot of Germans uh, have, have moved over to perhaps a more Anglo-Saxon model. I've seen it with friends of mine in Germany. I've seen it in friends in Austria as well. They've started buying property not only for themselves, but also uh, as investment as well. But the increase in rents has gone down aggressively. In fact, what's very interesting as well is the listed companies, uh, the NAV of the share price compared to the uh, actual NAV. Uh, the share price has actually been slightly underwhelming as of late because of concerns about politics and rent caps as well. As well. But it is absolutely fascinating that the ECB, I mean, we talk about the laws of unintended consequences. This is another one of them. But you know, they're blithely ignored over in Frankfurt as well. But the fact of the matter is, it is changing the model of how people live in Germany and elsewhere because they can't get income from anywhere else. And also, if you are getting these rent increases as well, why not own instead? Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.